0: Hey, what's happening, everybody? You're listening to another bonus episode of the Supermarcado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks a lot for tuning in today for this special bonus episode. We're going to be sharing with you guys the audio of our panel we did last weekend at Gamers Rhapsody. We had a wonderful weekend full of video game music. Yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah, First of all, we just wanted to uh, thank everybody who came out, not only to our panel, but to our live show, the debut of the Supermercado Brothers band at Gamers Rhapsody. Videos yeah, you'll be seeing of that some videos be in the next couple days. Yeah. So the panel we did this past weekend was inspirations and influences, and that was based off of a really old episode, episode forty-nine of the podcast. So if you if you've heard that episode, uh, some of this will be uh, familiar to you, and it's possible you may have some of this information already. But if you haven't, this is a good um, you know thing to check out in. It's We definitely explored and went to some different territories that we didn't cover sure. in the episode. So it was, it was a pretty good Yeah, time. one little disclaimer, uh, just the audio quality. This was recorded with sort of a, a standalone device in the, the audio, middle of yeah, the The quality the isn't ballroom. great. Yeah, so it, it's just kind of just live recorded audio, but it should be audible enough for you guys to hear what's going on. And That's you know, why it's a thought, bonus episode. Yeah, just yeah. a little bonus nugget of um, some of the fun that we had at Gamer's Rhapsody. This panel was with Carl, myself, and Marty, Um, who also was on that original episode. So Mm -hmm. uh, it should be a whole bunch of fun. Like I said, uh, the videos uh, from our live show will be upcoming, and we're really excited to sort of share that with the world. Yeah, and on Monday, we're going to be featuring our final episode of Nintendo Month. So we'll talk to you guys then. Enjoy the panel. Talk to you next time. So, uh, hello everyone, how's everyone doing this weekend? Good. Yeah, yeah Game Drop City. So we are the Super Mercado Brothers, as you can see. Uh, we actually host a video game music podcast. Uh, if anyone's not interested, you can find us on iTunes, and our website is supermarcanobrothers.com. Today, very, very kind of speedily, we're going to move through music history to talk about the inspirations of video game music. When we all think about video game music, there's a specific sound that probably comes to our head, right? It's this very unique entertaining, catchy, punchy kind of sound, right? Where does that come from? We're going to be talking about the various diverse influences uh, of video game music today. Some of the things that um, we've noticed over the years through doing this podcast and listening to so much music, and the cool thing about our show is having different topics that allow us to recontextualize some of our favorite music that we grew up listening to, um, is that we realize how eclectic uh, game music as an art form really is in that it uh, so liberally more than any other medium I would say feels free to borrow influence from different uh, genres and different varieties of music uh, throughout history and it feels free to do that I think largely in part because in the early days of game music the limitations of that hardware almost served as this kind of glue that allowed uh everything, you know, jazz and classical and pop music to kind of live together in this hybrid. And so this is kind of ambitious. We're going to try to make sure we get this done under an hour. We could probably have a three-hour panel on this, but we're going to see how far we can go with this. So let's start from the earliest example we have prepared for you today. So we're going to take you guys back to the medieval period, uh, to a piece that was composed in the 1200s by Alfonso X, who was a Spanish king. We're going to take a listen to a piece of music called Contiga 166, and this, um, after we play this, we'll talk about, you guys might not even need us to say, but we're going to talk about the influence of this in video games. ¶¶ or really the musical influences that are happening uh, outside of the sort of hardware or cultural technology. So, I mean, I think it goes all the way back to this medieval period. Well, this is, yeah, what's cool, this is an actual medieval piece of music. We've all seen movies and TV shows where, almost to the point of cliche, where they harken back to this style, but this is actually legitimate medieval music. So, some of those composers have got it quite... Quite accurate, you know. In a lot of those movies, here's an example from a game. This is from Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles. It's quite similar, wouldn't you say? a very similar instrumentation, but also in terms of the music theory, very similar operating. And I think Dorian, yeah, the Dorian mode is important. The modes are it's a it's a system of scales that was developed uh, by the church in old sacred. You've ever heard the term Gregorian chants? That's sort of um, what that's talking about is this vocalism technique. But anyways, uh, those modes are are scales, which with uh, with which a lot of early music uh, was composed. And so I think in games or movies, whenever we're trying to evoke something, you know, think of like Game of Thrones or uh, you know Lord of the Rings, anything that's trying to evoke this quasi medieval ancient feeling, oftentimes the use of the modes is a really effective way of doing that. Absolutely. Well, let's move forward a little bit. We're actually going to move forward quite a bit <laughs> <laughs> to the Baroque era. Uh, we kind of have to. We don't, we don't really have much more time than that. One maybe little shout-out is, uh, you know, Gregorian use in modern times would be the halo theme, right? Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a great example So of that. essentially what Gregorian, if any of you have uh, been to, like, a Catholic mass, in your life, you may have heard some of this. And what Gregorian chant is, it's setting um, sacred Latin texts uh, to music. And there's a lot of vocalism. And in general, um, it kind of sounds like ah, 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 um, <laughs> The picture it much faster than the Holy Grail before you hit <laughs> <laughs> yourself. exactly. So, so, move, jumping ahead to the Baroque era, this is a really important era to talk about for the influence of video games because what you'll see in early video game writing on the NES, for example, when they had such limitations, three voice limitations, uh, this type of writing uh, was was very was a very popular choice. This is uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, often viewed as one of the greatest uh, classical composers, definitely one of the greatest composers in the Baroque uh, period. And one of the reasons we wanted to play a piece from Bach is because, like Carl mentioned, those limitations like if we think on the NES of only three voices, what's so great about Baroque music is that it's uh, what's called contrapuntal, which means that the the lines each have an independent character and they work together. So rather than having these thick chords, the piece that we're going to play only uses two voices. So this is a Bach invention, which all of his inventions are two-part pieces. Let's take a listen to a little bit of Invention 13. So not, not only do some early video games feature licensed classical music and Baroque music, if you actually listen to the part writing here, Uh, It's the same type of uh, part writing that is used on the NES. This is a two-voice piece. Uh, If they were to have a two-voice piece on the NES, it's great because then the third channel could be used for sound effects, which is very common for early games like arcade games, something like Clue Clue Land. Early Nintendo games a lot of times had two-voice writing, so uh, you really hear that influence. A lot of the compositional principles that uh, are sort of underlying a lot of this Two part music or a lot of broke period music are definitely at play in early NES music because we get the sense, even though we have a limitation of two or three voices, of really a full harmonic backdrop. We really have a clear picture of the chord changes, if you will, at all times, just as we do in the Bach. Well, and the other thing about in this specific piece, um, there's a lot of what's called imitation, which means that you have. A specific idea, in this case in the left hand, that gets repeated in the right hand in some shape or form. And so your ear is bouncing back and forth between that. I, I think it's safe to say in a lot of early video game music there is more of a dichotomy of melody, harmony, bass, but I think a lot of composers in the 80s and 90s were really influenced by that, those limitations and chose to write in a more antiquated style, but it's because the limitations um, were a necessity. So another thing we have to do, we really have to kind of skip through here, and let's talk next about not just the classical era, but the romantic era as well. The next piece of music we're going to play is a, a very famous excerpt from the Blue Danube Waltz. Let's take a listen to this excerpt, and then we'll talk about its influence in video games. Take our word for it. Check this out. So, what's similar here to that Strauss please? There's so much that's similar. Uh, sort of working from the outside in. Uh, it's a waltz. Not only a waltz in meter, meaning there are three beats per measure, but it's in the style of a Viennese waltz. Yeah. Which Strauss, was famous for, is considered the waltz. Um, and also, even melodically, in terms of the rhythms of the melody are also, right. also very similar. So, uh, it's, and it's very clear, Koji Kondo was influenced by Strauss, wanted to create a piece that was almost worthy of that sort of orchestral waltz. Uh, for my money, I think for all our money, we're probably going to be listening to Koji Mark. Sure. Well, so I think a lot Another thing that's great about that Koji piece is how it starts it, it has what's called contrary motion, which means it starts with just two voices. And they start at a unison on a D. And they move in separate directions and contract backwards. And there was a little bit of that kind of uh, contrary motion happening in the, game, in the oh. Uh For those of you that weren't necessarily familiar with that section that we played, the uh, Blue Danube is the piece that goes yeah, da,
1: da, da, da. That's the most recognized. yeah da da, da, da. Uh, So, I, I just
0: wanted to mention that uh, we're so we're so strapped in time, trying to cover as much music as we can. Uh, if we have time at the end, we will take questions, but we're not ignoring any questions. Yeah, we're just going to wait till the end to make sure we cover everything. So uh, that is a, a late eighteen hundreds composition, and if we wanted to show another uh, example to you guys of the influence of music from that era, slightly later than that era, uh, does anybody know what this piece of music is? Feel free to shout out, from Ocarina, but the title from Ocarina, right? Um, you might be surprised to, to hear that this piece of music um, could be influenced by an impressionist piece of music like this. probably heard it in films and maybe even television commercials, a uh, very characteristic use of the major seventh chord that the melody really fixates on that major seventh degree which would have been a very striking sound even 20 or 30 years prior to this composition by Sati. And in the intro to Ocarina of Time, Koji Kondo really emphasizes that major, seventh, that major seventh sound and it's actually all over that higher score, and actually look to the past, it's, it's a big part of the sound we associate with. So, I think, though the point we're trying to make is not that uh, when we're contrasting these examples, it's not that there's any kind of copying or sense of taking something, but it's that these composers are being influenced by our collective musical heritage. And as you'll see, as we're going to continue, some of the same composers are influenced from pieces. Dating far back to like the Renaissance to as recent as pop music from the nineteen eighties. Well, well that's a great point. I, I think it comes down to the emotional impact. If Koji Kondo wanted that specific emotional impact, what other genre of music would be as effective? I don't know. A major seventh chord has I honestly a specific don't know. So, nostalgia, a ho- potency of kind of melancholy yeah. that is really only exists in that harmony. I think so, too. Well, we're almost going to leave the 1800s. By one year, we're a little shy. But we're pretty much moving into the 20th century now and really changing things up with an example from Scott Joplin, who was uh, the pioneer of ragtime. Let's take a listen to his most famous rag. This is Maple Leaf Rag. So one of the genres... One of the genres uh, of music that Koji Kondo, for example, was most influenced by for the Mario series, and not just him, but any other composers, uh, you know, Hip Tanaka, that would work on series like Mario Land, Mario Land 2. Ragtime is definitely one of the biggest influences, and you'll hear it. And uh, Ragtime is one of the most, Scott Joplin is one of the most influential American composers in general. Um, in the entire jazz tradition, which is the basis for all of our popular music, so heavily influenced by Scott Joplin. So what's interesting is there is this. If you look at music history, there is this connection between the classical world and the jazz world, which eventually becomes popular music. And video games sit within side that because Scott Joplin really saw the music he was writing. I think a lot of people saw it as trite or you know not serious, but he really took his work seriously and wanted it to be treated at the level of you know like works like Chopin. And well, this, you know the best way to just. Quickly describe what break time is. Is it's taking the classical tradition from Europe and it's taking this new exciting kind of more American sound, um, putting it together, and jazz mixed with classical music is what break time and is. In- introducing some rhythms that were, would not have been common to most European classical music. These interesting kind of syncopations that <coughs> take you more from maybe an Afro-Cuban context or a Latin. Which also so is very at home in something like the Mario series. Well, and also the, the sense of harmony and melody in rag time. There's time. There's this sense of optimism about it in pure, sunshiny melody. I mean, uh, if we take that...
1: It's
0: simply just kind of outlining the harmonies. But there's, there's something about it that's so steadfast and optimistic. And I imagine that, along with... Common harmonic practices in ragtime were very influential to composers like Koji Kondo and tons of music in the eighties and nineties. So if we move into the twentieth century and we continue uh, the tradition of ragtime and in general early jazz, um, we get into composers like uh, George Gershwin. And what's what's really great is with piano rolls. And the piano roll was like the early version of what we have now with the MIDI. So we kind of we're of, watching Westworld. Did you see the piano yeah. roll in that we were able to actually capture the performance um, of a composer and a per- pianist such as George Gershwin. Let's take a listen to a, p- a piano piece of his called Sweet and Lowdown. Out of anything I've heard from Gershwin, it's the most video gamey piece he's ever written. Let's take a listen to it. Just close your eyes and imagine this in a video game. Uh, Domlin, Pioneer, with right. those yeah what well, Will was talking about with a very optimistic but steadfast melody but also these slight chromatic uh touches every, every now and again in the RPM. Well, I mean, you think the other thing that's important to mention when we're saying there's influence, it's not necessarily like that specific box
1: yeah, check this, this part out
0: In the 20s, but I think uh, a lot of the music composed in the 20s through the 40s has a lot of similar rhythmic characteristics, has a lot of similarities in terms of playing. Like <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a really fun example. It, it's not a very well known uh, Gershwin piece. But. And we, uh, Gershwin is, is such an amazing composer to really dive into and obsess over, because uh, you can really look at him through sort of multiple lenses, almost as a continuation of like a classical tradition. Uh, as a sort of a, a brand new invention of a jazz composer and also as a songwriter as a, for Broadway shows and show tunes. And we're going to see actually that that Broadway sensibility and that sort of show tune songwriting also has a place in influencing uh, video game composers. Well, let's continue then. Let's move on to an example uh, from, composed in the 30s. This is composed in 1935. Carlos Gardel uh, composed some of the most famous and beloved tangos, and this is definitely the number one tango of all time as far as popularity goes. Uh, Let's take a little bit of a listen to Por Una Cabeza. very lush, uh, romantic kind of writing. is something you hear in a lot of JRPGs, something like Final Fantasy. It, it really suits itself well to character pieces, uh, anything that has to do with love or romance between two characters. Well, this particular piece really showcases an incredibly clear melody, uh, it, a great economy of notes, uh, a very striking and memorable sequence of notes. And I think is also something that's very appealing to a lot of uh, Japanese RPGs. say in the early early 90s. Another thing that we wanted to mention, in terms of um, the influences we're focusing on, I think we're mainly talking about influences that were applicable to game music in the 80s and 90s. Because I think to us, that is when video game music had an identity that was separate from all other music. Because it was borrowing so liberally from all of these genres that it really became something completely new. And I think as we progressed through the course of time, uh, as technology improved and as games were maybe taken more seriously by the general public, uh, the, the lines between the different media, games, television, you know, it, gets film, it becomes a little bit more, especially when you talk about today, the line between games, TV, and movies, there almost isn't a line as far as how it sounds. You could listen to a, a sports sure. a game score, and a lot of people would not them. to say that there are incredibly unique game scores. Right. And the and implementations. I mean, I would still argue that video games are are still more comfortable with fully embracing being a genre piece. Uh, game music is more comfortable at being eclectic, at sending up a specific type of music more so than films and television. And I would still say that's the case. So uh, before we move out of the decades of the decade of the 30s, let's talk about a composer that probably has never been talked about in any panel before, right? This is a composer by the name of Leroy Shield, and he actually was born in Minnesota. Yeah, oh, I right. mean, shout out. So he worked for Hal Roach, uh, and Hal Roach was a company that made uh, shorts in movies such as Laurel and Hardy, and uh, the r Gang shorts of the original a Little Rascals. So the music of, of those, uh, of that kind of comedic entertainment, uh, we noticed that the, Leroy Shield and his fellow composers he had a similar mandate that '80s uh, game composers had. He had to write short, catchy jingles uh, that had to be in the background. They would loop over and over. You hear them a bunch, and you don't yeah, want they, to be them. Them so often that they really had to uh, be able to accompany a variety of different kinds of scenarios. Let's take a listen to one example of uh, Hal Roach uh, in uh, the '30s, and then we're going to play a game example. <laughs> all kind of using our imagination today in a way. I want you guys all to just imagine that this is a video game, but it's not with these instruments, it's with something maybe like this. So really the type of writing and the overall emotional impact is so similar. So it's, 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 it's great. We're seeing with a lot of these examples uh, music of uh, Eras that are so far removed from when these games were being made, they're almost getting a second life, kind of similar to the way we look at a lot of like hip hop music. It's almost giving a second life to like soul music of the '60s and '70s, because that's where like those are the breakbeats and the records that are used, sure. that we build on top of. I think that's a really interesting point that in um, the sort of beginning, of the, some of the early days of game music, that if there was this resurgence in. Rediscovery of early jazz harmony, and I think um, it's it's a really interesting phenomenon, which is why the fact that we're drawing a lot of comparisons, particularly with you know Koji Kondo, to composers like Gershwin and Scott Joplin, I think is indicative of that kind of phenomenon. Well, do you guys want one more example of of the Hal Roach parallels to video games? Let's give you one more here. Take a listen to this. I recognize this ending up being used as a theme for the oil rascal To me, it, it kind of feels like it has a low quality to it. With that in mind, let's take a listen to this. Again, they're both kind of written in this waltz uh, meter. Um, but I, I do think there's, there's a similar harmonic sensibility. There's a similar sense of chords that are in both of them. And, not to say that this composer was a direct influence, but again, it's indicative of the music that was composed in that era. And we wanted to focus on it because it's it's an interesting role that uh, this kind of short, tight music had to be written for a function where it could be used in either context. And a lot of that early game music, it's not tightly scoring in action. You know, it's just kind of general background music. Um, that needs to support a level. But I think there yeah. are similar, pr- similar principles at play in creating a piece of music uh, that's very brief, that has to loop frequently, uh, but can sustain multiple listens. Or like it loop. captures an emotion. Yeah, right. you don't tire of it, it's not fatiguing. Uh, somehow you you still enjoy hearing it even on the well, 40th, 50th. What's cool is when you when dig in into a lot of this Howl Roach music, you find the examples that really feel like like video games. Like, take a listen to this. It feels like we're exploring a cave or a dungeon, maybe. Uh, and you'll hear this type of uh, mysterious solo clarinet writing in something
1: like this, which is
0: also from the Final Fantasy series. But it's a very similar type of writing. That well, I think what this. it also just shows is that the instincts that composers had back then for scoring an emotion are not all that different from the instincts that we have to this day. Our general tastes may have changed and our sense of aesthetics are different, but what we respond to in music and how it correlates to emotion, I think, is something that will never really change. So, okay, one of the one of the things we have to talk about genre-wise is definitely Latin music. Uh, Koji Kondo has been interviewed before and saying that Latin music is something that he loves to listen to just on his own time, but it's definitely set its way into uh, some of those early video game pioneers. We should play an example of an actual Latin piece of music from a Latin jazz band called Machigo, and uh, the name of his band was the Afro-Cubans. This is a piece that was composed in 1951. Uh, I'll take a little bit of a listen to Mambo Scope. So to me there's a few things that jumped out about this uh, in relation to video games. It's uh, a really beautiful and very pleasing melody that's constantly harmonized. Um, really exciting rhythms that really jump off the screen. Right. And that's really what, what makes this feel like it uh, could be in video games. So if Do you see those Latin musics in a lot of genres or video game music that we might not even necessarily associate with Latin rhythms? whether we're talking about Mega Man games or racing games or other sorts of one-on-one fighting games? I think that one of the things that a lot of us really respond to, I think on a subconscious level, about video game music uh, in the early days is that we're hearing a lot of syncopation. We're hearing a lot of things that we associate with performance. You know, when you hear Latin music, it, it is about the performance aspect of it, and I think there's a charm to hearing music like that—either something that feels vocal or percussive or is evoking an instrument on something that's clearly synthesized and digital. It's like the same effect when you know, when in Portal, um, when uh, when Lados. yeah, when Glados is like singing the songs at the end. There's like this charm, a, a charm to, to a yeah. computer trying to. Well, honestly. If they weren't able to do that, listening to an NES sound chip wouldn't be that enjoyable. Right. purely the tone of it, a lot of people that didn't grow up with it, when I showed them, they're like, it sounds kind of bad. It sounds crappy. Right. Which it is crappy. I don't think anyone from that era sure would say otherwise. They, they're probably so glad they never have to deal with
1: it. But we but have a lot nostalgia of nostalgia connections.
0: We have this nostalgia to it, I argue, because of the music, not necessarily w- it, It's its association to such excellent composition for sure. Um, That's what's fostered our love for those sounds. So a genre that I'm really excited to move to, and we in some ways could have had a panel on this, is jazz fusion, right? So we're going to move to the 70s here. We're going to give a couple different examples of jazz fusion. So uh, one of the most popular uh, jazz fusion groups of the 70s was Return to Forever. And uh, their band leader was the very prolific Chick Corea. We're going to play an example of uh, a tune called Medieval Overture. And this is from an album called Romantic Warrior. This was in 1976. So for the most part, before any of us had really ever played video games. Listen to, not just superficially, the sounds here, they sound video gamey. Listen to what's actually happening. of synthesizers, right? So a lot of these uh, keyboard players got really excited, too excited, saying, <laughs> uh, to, to just go into that world, that new exciting world of synthesizers and the, the new sonic possibilities that, that allows. And some of those uh, same people would find themselves working in games. You know, we have a lot of keyboard players right. uh, that became game people. Well, I think the, the part that I played at, at the beginning... Um, That type of pattern, I think the chords are much more dense than a lot of stuff we tend to get in um, game music that sounds like that, but that type of pattern, it's something that's so keyboard-centric, and there's a lot of music with that character that exists in game music, for the same reason that Carl said. I think a lot of, particularly Japanese composers that grew up listening to Jazz Fusion and being inspired by that, were the generation that were sort of the early game composers the opening Capcom titles with Street Fighter Two, is very similar. Right. And then what's so great is when you get into the CD uh, era from the mid-90s, now these composers can actually make their own fusion recordings. Right. You know, if it's like a Sega racing game or, you know, what have you. Uh, So so that's really cool. Let's talk about something that we, we cannot not discuss today. Yellow Magic Orchestra. Is anyone familiar with Yellow Magic Orchestra? Okay, so you should check them out. If anyone likes video game music, check out uh, YMO. So they were an electronic, I would say, jazz fusion band uh, based out of Japan in the 70s. And it's crazy when you hear the influence they had on video game music, the sounds, the types of synths they used, the chord progressions, the influence of like, traditional Japanese folk and pop music mixed with jazz. It's absolutely wild, so you don't have to take my word for it. Let's take a listen to an excerpt from their piece, Tong Poo, from Yellow Magic Orchestra. This is 1978. (laughs) ¶¶ to kind of, if we're lawyers, we really want to make a really good, you know, opening and closing statement. Let's play a game example. This is from Ganbar Goman, also known as the Mystical Ninja series. What we really see is that um, particularly for composers in Japan that would uh, have been surrounded by the kind of music that we're listening to, this kind of jazz fusion influence Mixed with Japanese folk melody and uh, kind of eclectic pop sensibilities, uh, it's starting to make a lot more sense when we get the sort of musical gestures that we get from a lot of those. Yeah, you know, some of it comes out of the disco uh, craze. You know, that 1978 track, that was, you know, disco was, was, still, was still happening. So, so you definitely hear that. Uh, I, one thing that I will argue is I don't think that music was, was beloved at the time. When you listen to that Yellow Magic Orchestra song, I think there's a lot of people in 1978 that'd be like, oh, this is cheesy, this is just dumb, this is stupid, and it's not really appreciated until we can kind of translate that and condense it into video games by a whole different generation. People that weren't alive in the 70s, but they are alive in 1992, 1993, and they're appreciating that kind of music maybe for the first time. It's sort of like that breakbeat, like sort of record guy kind of also, I also think though that music was an influence, it definitely didn't put as much emphasis on melody. You know, it, right. was, it was more about the electronics and the colors and the the live, you know, improvisatory jazz element. Maybe gimmicks. Right? Yes, video game music, especially a lot of the early stuff, is really so focused on those catchy sound bites, which is again why it's um, this blend of genres and something different. Right, and I think it's important to remember that a lot of those early video games were really seen as toy products for children. And so I think that's um, that's an important it was an important consideration for a lot of the composers is that they were making family-friendly, uh, kind of children accessible pieces of music with melodies that you could immediately you know, connect with. So if we just jump a few years into the future, finally into the 80s here, uh, it's, it's crazy. We finally moved into the 80s. And, and for the most part, this is really the last decade we're going to talk about. Because, you know, in a couple years after this, we or a few years after this, we get the NES, you know. So we got to talk a little bit about John Williams. Um, and not just John Williams, but the influence of film music on these early game composers. So we're going to play a little bit of an excerpt from the Raiders' March, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, this was composed in 1981. Let's take a listen to we could probably have all of you, you know, sing that theme back to so us. But John Williams, I mean, like a lot of great movie composers, is just a master of the theme, a master of creating those uh, time-tested melodies that stay in your head. And I think that's um, that philosophy, in and of itself, might be one of the most important contributions that. Uh, film music gave to video games. I think in more contemporary examples, as we mentioned, uh, uh, the worlds of film music and game music are so closely related in terms of their aesthetic qualities, but I think particularly in the, um, the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of game composers, when they were trying to make something epic and exciting, they really wanted it to feel like a John Williams score. When it was almost part of the package of the film, 80s is that it's like, okay, you've got the poster and who are the actors and then what's the theme? Uh, and that that had really a lot of cachet. And games took a lot of that same philosophy. I mean we had games that were adaptations of movies that well, I mean, sequence those themes cool. and we'll this is example. Example. You know, this yeah. this uh, you know original Zelda theme, there's no question this was an attempt to make a rousing timeless theme uh, just as effective as a movie, it sure happened. No, no, I, I, I think a lot of uh, film score conventions, you know, so and so's theme. Um, that like, we tell a lot of early uh, game composers were influenced by that idea. If you dig through the, the Final Fantasy soundtracks or any RPG scores, you know, you notice how many character themes they are. And I think again, just like how we talked about with the Gershwin thing. Their compositional instincts for how to write for that, I think, were influenced from films, but also just can be attributed to composers' natural um, inclination for how to score a particular emotion. It's also an interesting uh, style of music to look at because we're mostly talking about film scores for big international blockbusters, movies that would have been in the Japanese market and the American market, and it was a really nice reference point you have to imagine for composers doing things like. Okay, like we're kind of on the same page here. We're well, I think we really You know, covering a film score of the late 70s, early 80s is so important because really what it means is it means for the first time in a long time reinvigorating people uh, with the power of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Because in the 70s, it was kind of the stark age. We had a lot of really awful disco soundtracks to movies. It just It was not the best era. And Star Wars, honestly, reinvigorated that. Um, So the power of melody, the power of the orchestra. Well, we see a lot of of parallels. I mean, the same way that uh, Star Wars possibly ushered in this um, kind of resurgence of archetypal storytelling and being inspired from serials from the 50s and old adventure movies from the 30s, the same way that film scores tended to do the same... And just like uh, there's that parallel in games, how we talked about uh, a rediscovery of chords and harmonies and uh, melodic styles from the '20s and '30s. Uh, I I think there's a lot of parallel um, in both. So what's what's so interesting is even so far we've covered so many genres. We've talked about medieval music, classical music, jazz music, uh, you know, rags. Let's let's talk time for when it all comes. It all culminates here, um, 80s pop music. Not just 80s. Huey Lewis in the News. Um, this, this is incredibly important. Okay, so we're going to talk more. We're going to play a couple examples of this, this decade's rock pop music. Let's play you an example of Do You Believe in Love, which uh, was, was uh, released in 1982, still before most of us ever played any video. And pay, take careful attention to a sort of bass-like sound to send the bass like sound that you hear to the contractor. Uh-huh. kind of chuckle at this. Right. But at the time, this was, you blast this on your radio and nobody's going to make fun of you. This is the kind of music that's unabashedly happy, positive, do you believe in love? That was the kind well, of music. I also, you also can think the uh, production standards uh, ever since the 1960s were just growing and growing and growing. 80s was sort of like the saturation point of like yes. how much reverb can we use, how big can the drums sound, you know. How It's so big and I think there's almost a philosophical idea underneath there and yeah. I think our exposure to games and um, early console gaming was really born under that kind of philosophical uh, cloud that we were all living. It was a promise of like a new world, but a new world of like Well, and and we're going to talk about it with the next example, but the really important thing is that these composers were listening to these songs on the radio. This was influencing their compositions. Even if it was a specific mandate, you know, they're listening to Eye of the Tiger, and they're coming up with, you know, a rocking uh, piece of background music. That's going to have... Well, like, for those of you that played games like Mega Man or Castlevania, and uh, you almost felt like you're in an 80s montage, I I think (laughs) there is that... There is that uh, sort of that kind of like well the next slide. Was. Speaking of montages, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I have the Tiger, right? So let's 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 move on to one more example of '80s rock here. This is from an another really popular international release. This was big in Japan. Uh, let's take a listen to a, a song called "Mighty Wings." This is performed by Cheap Trick. And does anybody know Ken's stage from Street Fighter Two? Nobody. Okay. So. Just, just take a listen to this. Counter example. <laughs> <laughs> there's no question that, uh, same key and everything. There's no question that music like this was influential on composers, not just at Capcom. But anytime they wanted to go for an American sound, yeah, this is how they did it. And well, they did a good job. And I, I really don't think that that, that piece is composed by Yoko Shimomura. I, I don't think she, she was amazing. trying to be tricky or you know, clever or like lifting something. I really think she was almost kind of sending up that music. And in the same way that if you listen to a lot of vaudeville or Tin Pan Alley songwriting, there's these same kind of, you know, musical cliches dun, 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 that, that are used in so many songs, they almost don't have their own identity. They become like, the was, last thing about Top Gun, music. so earlier this this year, we actually got to interview Manami Monsimai, who composed Mega Man and UN Squadron. She worked on Shovel Knight. She actually said, she referenced Top Gun. When she was working on UN Squadron, the designer of the game was like, "Do you know Top Gun? Make music like that. That was her mandate for, for UN Squadron, so... I mean, that's, that's Capcom, and they're yeah. the that. So we're not making cars, it, you're Mega Man, that short little person that seems like they have a chip on their shoulder. Just picture Tom Cruise. <laughs> <referring> to <him>. <laughs> 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 so, okay, the, the last thing we want to touch on, also in the 80s here, we talked about, I guess, American film music. we got to talk about Japanese film music, too. Um, probably all three of our favorite, uh, one of our favorite film composers, definitely a favorite Japanese film composer, Joe Sashim. And we're going to play an excerpt from uh, his score to Laputa: Castle in the Sky. For those of you who don't know, uh, he was the composer on um, all the the Studio Ghibli films, like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke. Let's take a little bit of a listen to this. So not only um, does this type of emotional tone carry over into games, this type of melodic fragment actually was used multiple times in the mm-hmm. '90s. Breath of Fire uses a very similar melody on their track "Alan and Cyril Forever." Um, Chrono you know, trigger, trigger has is, it. And there's tons of examples. Uh, I think um, what's interesting—we uh, talk about film music as being this sort of melting pot of different genres. I think a lot of that really has to do with the influence of Japanese composers and Japanese cultural philosophy. Um, And I think you can see it just as much in film music that here, uh, what this composer is doing, it's it's this mixture of jazz and classical, and it's all presented in this way that feels true and emotional and evocative. But the, the types of chords he's using, the types of, rhythms and harmonies and everything, they, they don't borrow from just one source. So before we open it up for questions, we have one really fun example. Uh, the last example we're going to share with you guys today. And this is kind of like a backwards example. It's like, who's influencing who? It's all getting jumbled, right? which is great. So Masato Nakamura, who was a, a Japanese songwriter and bassist, of this really popular band, Dreams Come True, in Japan. Sega thought it'd be a good idea to hire him make the music for Sonic, because they wanted it to be really cool. They were banking on this being a really cool character. And it was a great idea. Uh, He had such a wonderful time working on Sonic 1 and 2 that a track of his from Sonic 2, the ending of Sonic 2, uh, he incorporated that back into his band, and turned it into a song. Here's the ending. And here's his song, Sweet, Sweet, Sweet. So it's the exact same melody, it's the same song from the ending of Sonic Music. Definitely go on YouTube, check this
1: out, you guys will flip if you're a fan of Sonic Music. So with this in the background, maybe now's a good
0: time to open it up for
1: questions. <laughs> yes. I think one uh, one of the big things that I, was, uh, I want to get out of this is what should I listen to uh, from both just regular film like, directors and video games in general in order to get just a basic all-around feel for finding inspiration through well, through my remixes or through any kind of song style. Sure, that's a great question. That's interesting. So inspiration uh, from game music, uh, both, both game music and sort of like film direction or film schools. Sure. Uh, I mean, we're biased, but I I would say uh,
0: film. Listen to John Williams. Um, Game stuff. uh, I mean, for us, like the reason why we why we put this together, and what we love mostly about video game music um, are the melodies, melodies that are timeless and catchy and whatever. I think another important thing to take away from this is that being saturated with lots of different types of music is a very beneficial thing for a composer. And so it doesn't have to be this specific music. Listen to as much as as you possibly can. Even if you don't want it to sound like any of these things, having sort of a wide net as far as the music you're listening to can only be beneficial. Even if your stuff doesn't sound like that, there might be a principle from that music. There might be something that... In inspires you, and I think we can um, look at these video game composers as a great inspiration um, for that lesson of... Well, one thing I'll say uh, to you is, uh, go outside your comfort zone. If you're interested in electronic music, listen to show tunes, listen to jazz music, listen to genres that you're not as familiar with. You will be shocked how it influences and, and that... My, and vice that versa, if you enjoy listening to Debussy or Chopin... Listen to Megadeth, yeah, absolutely. Listen to as much as possible, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think any of us could be well-served by um, even just spending some time with Spotify, playlists Sure. Um, if you even need to do some Googling to see, like, okay, who are some of the top names in film scores? Like, okay, Jerry Goldsmith, sure. Elmer Bernstein, and... Um, feel I'll free to talk to us sure. after, we'll give you some recommendations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, when you were talking about medieval influences, how in the world did you not mention Dragon Quest? And more recently, The Witcher. Well, yeah, because there's only three. You're right. There's only three video games that were medieval. <laughs> no,
1: Dragon Quest's castle
0: theme is literally. What about Final doo-doo. Fantasy? Then? There's well, what we love about the series is literally beat for beat, like an eight bit rendition. Th- the bottom line but is there matters. are so many video games. have so many more examples than we're able to. Show. We wanted to play an example that actually featured the same instrument. Clearly, the music from the Dragon Quest series so is some of the greatest video games. What's up? Can you talk about the influence of, like, world music or music from non caucasian places? Absolutely. <laughs> well, 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 we definitely did uh, when, when we talked about Latin music, for sure. Um, Latin music is one of the most important genres. Um, and and I would different. say, really, it's something that, regrettably, there's less of that influence in the 80s and 90s, uh, and I think, I feel like we're still we're seeing increasingly more and more of it, um, we're and I think we're seeing, we are seeing a greater breadth of influences and a greater diversity of composers that uh, are contributing and participating in video games. You know, when you think about the 80s and 90s, it is a weird, eclectic set of composers. Uh, we have a very interesting set of Japanese composers, and a lot of them, they're... Is a really strong European classical influence. Well, yeah. a, I mean, sometimes baffling, but yeah. if you're talking about yeah. world yeah. music influence, I think traditional Japanese music that would count. Um, yeah. I think Latin music would count. Those are just a couple examples from from the eighties. Well, I think also with the idea of video games being kind of a melting pot, I, I think a lot of times we get those influences in conjunction with something else. Yeah. So, so like in, huge, in that in yeah. that example, we played uh, the Gunbar Goemon. Sure. Uh, it it was taking Japanese folk, but it was presenting it to us in this kind more pop way. Yeah. And that I mean you could even look at the Halo games, is that where there, you know, especially the first game where there is definitely world music influence, actually, but it's the, done. You it reminded me of, of rocking. Something. There's Those actually ones. a huge, maybe one of the most beloved soundtracks of all time, that has uh no, I, know, I, I would say Yoshi's Island. We well, are yeah. talking about avid folk music yeah. Right. as far as very pure, singable melodies that are harmonized, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah. rhythmically everything you did with, we're, we're obviously mm-hmm. huge fans. Well, and stuff. I think there's, there's definitely yeah. a bias like Will was saying earlier, is that a lot of those early composers were keyboardists, and I think a lot of them came from yes. almost a piano pedagogical yes. sort of track, and I think once we get to an era where it's more like recording, and it's yeah. not just keyboard players that grew up with sort of piano study. I, I think we see influences from a lot more. Well, and people. I was and really performing. a lot of, of modern is- score in general is so reliant on uh, percussion and drum loops. Right, but I think if we're that. talking about the '90s, as much as you can in 1995 on the Super Nintendo, Yoshi's Island was an example of getting outside of the, those same traditions, yeah. moving into something a little different. I so I guess that's one. I have a real question, not discussed as a statement. Okay. Uh, One, th- uh, what do you think of uh, video game music in the PS2 and GameCube era beyond? Because after that era, the systems didn't really have their own personalized sound. Sure. Right. They all sound the
1: same. Two, you didn't mention a lot of examples from modern video video games. And right. I think yeah, we think mentioned some stuff of our
0: was more on this sort of the era where. The style of video game music, musically speaking, an was very right. distinct. I think as we get into more recorded music, the line really starts blurring as, like, oh, is this from a film? Was this from a game? Was this from a TV show? So we were mostly, and there's a lot that you said about that, for, for purposes of our panel, yeah, we're talking about more right. interested in this sort of very distinct VGM uh, style. Well, yeah, the unique, I, the unique identity of the and I think over the years, it's it's gotten less unique. Uh, sure. When you listen I to a modern, know. when you listen to a modern score, there's not as much to differentiate it from film and TV as there was. In well, writing. I think there there is, but it's not it's not just the music alone. It has to do with its function in the game and how and the interactive nature of it. But as far as when you're listening to a soundtrack on its own, uh, I um, think the proof is in like a lot of the, these pieces we played. You can almost imagine them going alongside. Yeah. One thing I'll, I'll say to that point is, uh, there's a lot of amazing stuff happening in music nowadays, in PS2, PS3, PS4 era, all, all that stuff. But in my opinion, I kind of have to look harder for it, uh, for those powerful timeless melodies that I loved and, and we got so much of in the 80s and 90s. So there's maybe less timeless melodies, but they are out there, you just have to look for them. Well, and it's a difference in, in philosophy, I think, the games back then were simpler and more direct and not, not obviously all of them but there, there, there was just a, a difference in what sure. needed to be done Final question
1: here before we gotta get going Yeah, I, I have a question but I did want to add on your world music aspect, uh, just another thing just in base percussion, a lot of African music, if you can hear any kind of that they have some of the most complex rhythms that you would ever see but, okay, back to my question I'm sorry uh, if you guys could pick two video games, one based on the soundtrack, and one based on the gameplay, what would you take?
0: Last of Us for the game. I would say Metroid Prime is my favorite game for the game. For soundtrack, I think I would say Yoshi's Island. For me it would be Mario uh, 64, uh, Another World is a game, or Oculus oh, World, yeah. and then for soundtrack, oh gosh, uh, Link to the Past. Okay. Donkey Kong Country 2, never mind. I don't know. It's it's too hard. Guys, thank you so much. Last thing, uh, we have a podcast, Super Mercado Brothers. Check out our website. Thank you.